we thank you, Father, for, um, for love, for your love. Agape love that you demonstrated when you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. Lord, the love that you've poured in our hearts and that you desire that we serve others with. And towards that end today, we pray that you would use your word to teach us, train us, coach us. Lord, expand our hearts that we might love like you love. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are talking about agape love uh, during this series. If you have a Bible, turn to the great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. That's where we find ourselves. And uh, last week, in talking about agape love, we saw that it is defined as self-sacrifice for other people that flows out of a desire for their highest good. Self-sacrifice for others that flows out of a desire for what is best for them, for their highest good. You know, Jesus once declared that agape love was the sum and substance of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love people with agape love. That is the sum and substance of the Ten Commandments. He also declared that agape love is the distinguishing mark of his followers, his people. By this will all men know, he said, that you are my disciples if you have what? Love. Love for one another. We saw last week that agape love comes from God. Comes from from God. Love is from God. It is not a work of the flesh that you can work up. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Something that God the Spirit produces in His people as we yield the controls of our lives to Him and as we walk in daily dependence upon Him. He produces the fruit of the Spirit, love, and He will surely do that. Well, in... Our exploration of this great chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, we find ourselves again in a very beautiful and poetic section. And here we're going to discover agape love defined in very practical terms in how it relates to others. We're going to see how self-sacrifice fleshes out in relationships. So I'm going to ask you to read this aloud with me. It's on your, printed out on your outline there, 1 Corinthians 13, beginning with verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. I'm wondering, are there any of you that have this section of Scripture uh, on a plaque in your house somewhere? Yeah, several of you. Very famous, well-known passage of the Bible, rich in meaning. And when, I, when we read this, I think that somewhere in our hearts we know it's true. We know that this is the expression of true love. When I read through this this week, I noted there are 16 distinct descriptions of agape love found in this section, and preachers throughout the ages have attempted to somehow group them together or categorize them so as not to have 16-point sermons when they preach through this passage. But I wasn't able to find any grouping that didn't seem artificial to me. So I want us to walk through these together with a commitment to not spend more than a minute or two on each one. But let's note first that love is patient. How many of you could stand a little more patience in your lives? 
Don't pray for that, by the way, because when you pray for patience, God drops a very difficult, annoying person in your life, so you'll learn patience. <laughs> I pray with people all the time, and one of the things they pray about the most is, God, grant me patience. And I always cringe and say, oh, you know, be careful what you pray for. The word means to be patient with people, and it, it, the old English term was long-tempered, not short-fused. It was the ability to refrain yourself from exploding, retaliating, getting hostile, and seeking vengeance on those who have hurt you or mistreated or maligned you. Love is patient. It bears with people. It does not expect perfection from them, does not demand perfection from them, because love knows ain't nobody perfect. Nobody. In the Greek world of that era, this was not a virtue, patience. But the Bible consistently holds patience up as an expression of agape love. Now, all of us would prefer a trouble-free life, amen? All of us would like an easy life. All of us would like to be free from hassles and problems and drama. And we especially would like to be free from rude people and unreasonable bosses and stupid drivers and annoying in-laws. Here's the deal. If you're in relationship with anyone, you will need patience. And people will need patience with you. That is true. Fail to cultivate patience and you'll end up a lonely, bitter, isolated person. Thank Jesus Christ for his patience with us. Amen. He should have obliterated us a long time ago because of our faithlessness. But he is patient because he is love. Agape love is patient. Second, it's kind. This word means to seek the well-being of others. And it's interesting. The word has the idea of being useful or beneficial to others. One of my friends took this to heart this week, and he got me a very useful, beneficial gift after hearing my message uh, last week. He got me a waterproof tablet and pencil to use in the shower (laughs) to write down what I sense God is saying to me in the shower, which is where God talks to me. Very useful. An act of love. An act of love. Love is kind. People will hurt each other. Offenses will come. Even in the church, people will get crosswise with each other and frustrated. People will be maligned. In our natural flesh, the, uh, the response usually is to take sides or to fight back or retaliate. But agape love, it says, responds with kindness. Love is patient and kind. And third, it does not envy. It means it doesn't boil over with jealous passion. Envy is when you want what someone else has, but because they have it and you don't, your heart burns with jealousy. That's the word here. You cannot rejoice in that person's success. You cannot rejoice when they get praised or promoted. The coworker who gets promoted ahead of you, the sibling who seems to always get treated better than you do, that other guy or gal who seems to always get all the breaks, And in your heart, you're thinking, it's so unfair. That person who is better looking, more athletic, more gifted, has a prettier wife, a nicer car, a more respectable job, and it's eating you up on the inside, and you're fantasizing about how to make that guy look bad or magnify their mistakes, that's envy. That's jealous envy, and agape love does not envy. Shakespeare called envy the green sickness. It was out of jealousy that Cain killed his brother Abel. 
Out of jealousy, Joseph was sold into Egypt by his jealous brothers. In a jealous rage, Herod tried to eliminate the baby Jesus. And it was because of envy and jealousy that the older brother couldn't rejoice at the party that was being thrown for his prodigal sibling who had come home and repented. Jealousy will eat you alive. Jealousy and agape love cannot, cannot coexist in the same heart. Agape love is not envious. So what are the first three? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Number four, love does not boast. The word here refers to a windbag, (laughs) a blowhard. Someone who is self-centered, always talking about themselves. It refers to egotistical bragging. Hey, look at me. Look what I've done. Look at my accomplishments. Look at my achievements. It's that kind of bragging that seeks to make self look really good and others look, well, not so good. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. That word means to puff up like a bellow. Think of a frog all puffed up. Love's not boastful, it's not arrogant. True love is not overinflated with an exaggerated sense of self-importance. Years ago, there was a great composer in Italy by the name of Mascagni who wrote a very famous opera called The Masks. Here is the dedication that Mascagni gave to this opera that he wrote. I dedicate this to myself with distinguished esteem and unalterable satisfaction. (laughs) The story goes on that one time he was asked to conduct a concert with another uh, more famous and more accomplished composer in Italy. So he met with the people who were providing him with this opportunity. He said, I'll do this on one condition. You must agree to pay me more than you pay that other conductor, whose name was Toscanini. And so they agreed to that, and they signed the contract, and they performed the concert. And after the concert was over, Mascagni approached the people for payment. And he was stunned when they handed him one lira as payment. He said angrily, what's going on? Why are you only paying me one lira? And they said, well, we agreed to pay you more than we, than we pay Toscanini, and he agreed to work for free. <laughs> so we're paying you one lira. You know, if you want to isolate yourself, That's the way to do it. Just decide in your heart and convince yourself that you're better than everybody else, that you're more important than everybody else, and you will become a lonely, isolated person. Such is the misery of the loveless soul. Our culture seems to celebrate people who get their swagger on, but the Bible celebrates those who possess agape love that is not arrogant and not boastful. Scripture reads also that love is not rude. That means it doesn't behave inappropriately or dishonorably. It doesn't have bad manners. You know, the essence of being rude is having a contempt or a disdain for other people. Love is not rude. It does not insist on its own way, or some translations say self-seeking. It's not self-seeking. It's unselfish. It's others-oriented. Tell you, this is a huge revelation to me when Jesus Christ saved me at age 18 because I was a young man who was self seeking, who was full of myself. I didn't really know any other way to live in those first 18 years. You know, we all love being made much of, don't we? And I love being made much of. 
I'm embarrassed and ashamed to say that I was all about making much of myself during that first season of my life. Both in high school and college, I played tennis on our tennis teams, and I also wrote on the school newspaper, a fortuitous combination for someone who was full of himself. And on more than one occasion, when I felt like I wasn't getting the airtime I deserved or the headlines that I deserved by my tennis prowess, I would use my pen and make it so. It was ugly, self-seeking, self-serving. I'm so grateful that Jesus Christ and his agape love for me came down and began to show me what real agape love really is. Self-sacrifice for the highest good of others. John MacArthur writes, self-elevation is the opposite of love. Love is unselfish, never demands precedence, recognition, applause, consideration, doesn't even care whether it gets honored or not. It is selfless. And he's right. Love does not seek its own. Love is not irritable, it says. That word means to be provoked into an angry outburst. Love does not explode all over people. There is such a thing as righteous indignation, though, isn't there? When God's name gets maligned, when Jesus' name gets gets drugged through the mud, it ought to cause an indignant response in us. Even Jesus, on several occasions, walked into the temple court, saw what was going on there, and got ticked off. So there is a righteous indignation, but the idea here is that love is not provoked and doesn't get all upset by personal offenses. I have a friend who this week was telling me the story of how God opened his eyes to just his own lack of love when he had been all focused on how unloving others were being. He was on a flight home, uh, I think it was over the, the New Year's holiday, and it was a crowded flight, and he and his wife got on late, and they knew they couldn't sit together, and he approached a row of three seats that had an elderly couple, probably 80-year-old couple, sitting in the, the two middle seats. And he said, I need to get over there to that window seat over there. And they got up and tried to move around, and it didn't go real well. And finally, they just moved over to the end, and he sat on the aisle seat and thought that would be okay. Flight got going into the air. Flight attendant came by to take some drink orders, and he ordered a Coke. And they said they seemed to be too busy to give the gal their order, but then later they said, no, we want some Cokes. He's like, you know, how inconsiderate. Why don't you think about others? The flight attendant came back a little bit later with snacks, and he got some snacks, and they didn't seem to want any, but as soon as she walked away, they said, we would like some cookies. Now he's starting to get a little miffed at them, you know. Do you not realize there's other people around and you're inconveniencing them? Then the bathroom routine started. The gal's like, uh, you know, I need to use the restroom. So everybody gets up, moves out. You know, there's tight quarters, right? And she goes to the restroom, and they sit down. Then she comes back, and they get up. She sits down, and this guy's thinking, you know, do these people not have any sense of propriety here? Do they not realize how they're inconveniencing people? Not even saying thank you. 20 minutes later, I need to use the restroom again. Same routine. 20 minutes later, same routine. Finally, my friend had had about enough of their lack of consideration. And when she came back in the third time, he said, oh, and by the way, you're welcome. Plane's getting ready to land, and uh, the 80-year-old gentleman leaned over to my friend, and he said, um, he said I, uh, I noticed that comment you made to my wife earlier. He said, since she contracted Alzheimer's about 10 years ago, 
I've had to overlook the fact that she's not real conscientious about the common courtesies and pleasantries of life. I hope you'll forgive us. And my friend said, when he said that, I felt about that big. Here I was, all miffed and frustrated and upset that they weren't paying attention to anybody else and weren't showing consideration and were being rude. And he said, I was stunned by the darkness that was in my own heart. How easily irritated we become. How easily irritated. One commentator said this, to be sensitive to offenses against God is a spiritual virtue. But to be hypersensitive to the offenses that other people bring to bear on your life is an expression of sinfulness. Can I just say this? Some of you are too easily offended, too easily hurt, too easily put out, too easily upset, too easily miffed. And that's what happens when people become all about themselves and how life is treating me. Love is not irritable. Number nine, it's not resentful. It's not resentful. Very interesting. The word used here is an accounting word. Love doesn't keep the books. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Loving you means I will not meticulously keep a mental ledger and record all the wrongs you've ever committed against me since the early 70s for quick reference so I can bring them back up and remind you of them at that moment when it seems most advantageous for me to do so. Love does not do that. It does not keep a ledger, real or imagined, of other people's offenses against us. Love refuses to do that, to keep holding it over your head and reminding you of how much you owe me. Love does not nurse long-term grudges. Love refuses to get resentful. I heard about a tribe of people living down in the South Pacific who actually made a virtue out of being resentful. It became customary for the people there to keep reminders of all the hateful deeds done against them by suspending little articles from the roofs of their hut so that every time they walked into their hut, they were literally slapped in the face with the remembrance of the evil that others had done to them, the wrongs that had been committed against them and they would get angry all over again. Sounds like a recipe for resentment to me. Now, we would never do that, would we? We would never hang little <laughs> reminders of the wrongs committed against us from our door frames in our homes. But we have more sophisticated ways, don't we, here in the 21st century of reminding ourselves of how other people have wronged us so we can get all stirred up and rehearse it all over again. And again, to some of you, I want to say, the offense that was committed against you, it, it, let it go. It was 1992 when it happened, okay? It was 1967. Let it go! Remember how much Jesus has forgiven you of. Let it go. Ask God for the grace to let it go. Love is not resentful. It doesn't hold on to wrongs. That's why John says agape love must come from God. It's got to come from him. It's not irritable. Agape love is not resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. That means it doesn't take pleasure in other people's sins. Love rejoices with the truth. It celebrates the truth, upholds the truth, speaks the truth, loves the truth. 
You know, there's probably someone in your life right now for whom your greatest act of love towards them would be to tell them the truth. Lovingly, making sure you are clear on the truth, but to tell them the truth. It might disrupt the relationship a little bit. It might put a strain on the relationship. But loving people fight for genuine relationships instead of relationships where there's a paper-thin, artificial layer of peace that won't stand hardly any confrontation. Love rejoices in truth. Love speaks truth even when it's painful to do so. Loving people value genuineness over artificial, feel-good relationships. And then there's this growing crescendo of love that phrases just seem to start come pouring out of Paul's heart. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. It never fails. And when I hear those phrases, I begin to think of certain friends of mine who, even though they are being stretched to their limit, continue to love. I think of friends of mine whose parents are in stages of Alzheimer's disease or in a stage of dementia. And it's so hard, isn't it? These people who raised you, who brought you into the world, who supported you and nurtured you and loved you, and then getting into this this situation where they may not even know your name anymore and are treating you very harshly. And I have friends, and that's the situation that they're in with their parents, and they just keep loving. They just keep loving them despite not receiving any love back in return. That's agape love. I think of parents who have special needs children that require their attention 24-7, all day, every day, every week. Another sleepless night, another, you know, falling into bed exhausted, and yet they just keep persisting in their love for that child. I think of parents who have a wayward son or daughter, a wayward teenager, and maybe they're away from home, and maybe they're out doing who knows what, and the parents don't even know what's going on with them. And they pray, but their heart is broken. And they're tempted to just write them off or close the chapter on that son or daughter, but they don't because God's agape love has taken root in their hearts and they refuse to give up. They always believe, always hope, always love, always persevere. You know what? Ultimately, their hope isn't in that son or that daughter. Their hope is in God, the sovereign God of the universe. And they realize as long as there's a God on the throne, there's hope. Love bears all things. That means to cover. It's an interesting word. To cover with silence rather than to loudly proclaim others' faults and sins and shortcomings. One man wrote, True love is reluctant to drag a person into scandal in front of everybody else. It bears all things, yes, but not in the sense of putting up with everything, but in the sense of being disposed to cover the ugliness rather than broadcasting it to everyone who will listen with the intent of humiliating the person. 1 Peter 4.8, love covers what? A multitude of sins. Agape love does that. I believe it was agape love that prompted Joseph to want to shield Mary as much as he could from the humiliation that would come with her being exposed as being pregnant out of wedlock. 
Love bears all things. That doesn't mean you never confront, but it does mean that you value people to such an extent that it pains you to see them humiliated by the unnecessary broadcast of their failures and flaws. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love is not always suspicious as a default mode. Love believes the best. Love is not eager to pounce on someone or nail them to the wall. Love wants to believe what's best about the person, and unless or until they give them reason to believe otherwise, they do believe the best. Love believes all things by seeking to cover the worst and believe the best. Love hopes all things. Love is incurably optimistic. It just keeps on hoping. Because as I said, the ground of hope is not the other person, but it's God. And love endures all things. Love never ends. Some translations, love never fails. You cannot kill agape love. It can endure anything. It can stand the strain of any set of circumstances. True love can. One man wrote, This is the crescendo of love. Love bears all hurts and wounds and disappointments. It believes the best about others in spite of the wounds gently throwing a mantle over their faults. And when the believing is betrayed, love still hopes because God is still God. And when hope even seems lost, love still endures with triumphant confidence that the God who is still God is still sovereign and still able. Love just holds on. Love is never totally overwhelmed. Never, no matter how many disappointments. And so this is it. This is the portrait of agape love that Paul has painted for us. This kind of love only comes from God. It's stunning. It's relentless. It's persistent. It's beautiful. I submit that no writer's pen, no artist's brush, no sculptor's careful hands could ever on page or canvas or with a block of stone capture in totality the immense beauty of the love of God, agape love. Do you know something? God wants the human race to experience and see this kind of love. That's why he sent his son. This is love, the Bible says. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's the ultimate expression of agape love. Amen? Self-sacrifice for the highest good of others. God wanted people to see it in his son, Jesus, and he wants them to see it in us. As I have loved you, Jesus said, so you must love one another. Well, there's a memory verse for us, as we had last week. There's one this week uh, near the bottom of your front side of your outline there. I'd like us to say this out loud together. These are the words of Jesus. We've alluded to them already this morning. John 13, 35. Would you say it with me? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One more time. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, uh, I took on the love dare last week. I issued to our church a bold-faced challenge. For 28 days to love others like Jesus loves us. And 
I've been doing that this week. I find that my wife and I make a great team on this. It kind of works like this. We're driving down the road, and my wife goes, hey, there's someone's driveway you could shovel. (laughs) Hey, there's someone's trash cans you could take back to their house for them, trudge through the the snow. It's a great teamwork. (laughs) And we're both learning how to love and asking God to expand our heart of love. Seven weekly love dares I've been giving you. And now here are a couple just to kind of whet your appetite for this week. Day eight, that's today. Here's a love dare. Meet somebody new. How about that? Take the initiative to meet someone you don't already know. At church, trying to help you out here. You could do this today. In the neighborhood, at a store, push through the awkwardness, introduce yourself and find out two or three things about them. Write their names down and pray for them later. Love does stuff like that. Takes the initiative. Engages with people. Here's one for tomorrow, day nine. Cross a barrier. Very appropriate for Martin Luther King Day. Seek out someone who seems different from you in background, status, race, ethnicity, or religion and engage them in conversation. Seek to understand them better. Listen more than talking. 